1: and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ore Ogunbiyi.
2: And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: South Korea has an unusually high suicide rate for the rich world. In the wake of recent and rather public tragedies, our correspondent dissects the worrying trend that seems to be affecting one group in particular.
2: And when you're struggling with a decision or seeking fresh ideas, often the advice is sleep on it. That seems particularly true for musicians. We explore the hits that were first made in Dreams and a new album filled with Paul Simon's nighttime inspirations. But first... As in many elections before, rumors of Recep Tayyip Erdogan's political demise turned out to be greatly exaggerated. Turkey's incumbent president claimed victory in yesterday's second round election runoff. Early results suggested Mr. Erdogan took just over 52% of the vote ahead of his rival, Kemal Kiriçdoğlu, who won just under 48%. Mr. Erdogan's supporters were jubilant as the votes were counted and yet another five-year term secured. Just weeks ago, Mr. Erdogan seemed on the back foot, with the country's earthquake disaster fresh in Turks' memories and an economy still speeding downhill. But he's done it again, and it seems the best chance in a generation to repair Turkey's democracy has been lost.
3: Recep Tayyip Erdogan addressed his AK Party supporters from the top of a campaign bus parked near the Jamlaja Mosque in Üsküdar, a district of Istanbul.
2: Piotr Zalewski is The Economist's Turkey correspondent.
3: And he managed to sound a few notes of unity before reverting to form.
0: <laughs> the
3: only winner in these elections is Turkey, he proclaimed. He then taunted his rival by calling him Bye-Bye Kemal.
0: Bye-Bye Kemal'e hesabını soracak
3: saying that his CHP, or Republican People's Party, would hold him responsible for the outcome. He then went on to call the opposition LGBT sympathizers and emphasize that for us, meaning for his party and his coalition, the family is holy, end quote. He has since been congratulated by Vladimir Putin and also by leaders such as Joe Biden and Emmanuel Macron. And what about
2: his defeated rival, Mr. Kirishtarolo? What did he have to say?
3: There were rumors leading up to Kirishtarolo's appearance that he might resign as head of the CHP. That did not happen. Instead he sounded a defiant
0: note.
3: Vowing to continue to struggle for democracy, he complained also that this had been the most unfair election in recent years and that all the means of the state had been mobilized for the sake of one candidate and one party. He also said the election showed people's will to change an authoritarian government.
2: So we did spend some time talking before the first round and and even after the first round about how this was a, a real chance. How is it that Mr. Erdogan managed to keep hold of the presidency?
3: Well, first and foremost, he managed to mobilize the nationalist vote and to mobilize nationalist supporters in and outside of his own party. Among other things, that resulted in an important endorsement after the first round, where Erdogan was not able to secure victory. The nationalist Sinan Owan, who won about 5.2% of the vote in the first round, which was a surprisingly strong showing, decided to back Erdogan in the runoff. Meanwhile, Umit Ozdan, the leader of the openly xenophobic Victory Party, which took about 2.2% of the parliamentary vote in which Erdogan's coalition prevailed, Endorsed Kilistarolu. That was also the case with Turkey's main Kurdish party, the People's Democratic. Party which had backed Kilicdarolu from the start that offered Kilicdarolu an advantage in that it mobilized about five million HDP voters to vote on his behalf, but it also made him vulnerable to attacks by Mr Erdogan that he had somehow teamed up with the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the armed separatist group of which. Turks will say the HDP, the country's main Kurdish party, is a political wing. And Mr. Erdogan hammered home the message over the course of the campaign that Kilis Tarol was somehow beholden to quote-unquote terrorists. And that message did resonate in parts of the country and did resonate among millions of voters, especially nationalist voters. Erdogan obviously also had most of the media behind him, while Kilis campaign was more social media focused. So this runoff
2: election was was really run by the arithmetic of, of what happened after the, the first round and I guess the fact that Mr. Erdogan still has a stranglehold on the media. Nevertheless, though, this, this feels like a, a real letdown for what seemed like a promising opposition run.
3: It does. I mean, on the one hand, Kilis became the first politician to have forced Erdogan into a runoff but on the other he had been favored at least until the first round to take the lead or even to claim an outright majority. He had been favored by the pollsters who turned out to have been entirely wrong but quite tellingly despite everything that has happened over the past five years, the earthquakes that struck Turkey earlier this year and the botched government response to those earthquakes, inflation that at some point reached over 80% and a series of currency crises, the opposition was able only to shave about 0.4% of Erdogan's results in the 2018 presidential elections. And so it turns out that backing for Erdogan is much stronger than anyone had expected. Kilstarol had made some late attempts to win over the hard right at the 11th hour, meaning after the first round. On May 17th, he appeared in front of a portrait of Kemal Atatürk, the founder of modern Turkey, and channeled his inner nationalist by promising to send millions of refugees based in Turkey back home and ruling out peace talks with the PKK. But this doesn't appear to have helped him in the end.
2: And what do you expect now from Mr. Erdogan that he has regained or retained
3: power? The opposition had promised to reverse Erdogan's creation of a powerful executive presidency, which is a blueprint for one-man rule. It also promised to release at least some of Turkey's political prisoners and to hand power back to nominally independent state institutions, starting with the central bank and to parliament. But Mr. Erdogan will now be able to use the unchecked powers he has accumulated to keep the courts, the central bank, and his own party in line.
2: And we've talked a lot on the show in the past about Mr. Erdogan's upside-down economics and the effects that has then on the Turkish economy and and for Turkish people. How does that end of things look now that he's uh, secured himself more time in office?
3: When it comes to Erdogan's power over the institutions, perhaps the most consequential is his power over the central bank. And to illustrate, we ought to remember that To help Erdogan's chances in the election, the bank had been selling billions of dollars in foreign reserves every week so as to prevent a run on Turkey's currency, the lira, and to keep inflation from spiraling out of control. If Turkey had had a truly independent central bank, the country would now be in recession. But as it is, credit has continued to flow through the economy, and Erdogan has been able to maintain the illusion of a functioning economy. But as a result of the bank's operations, the lira is now overvalued. Now, the lira has already lost 80% of its value against the dollar over the past five years, but it has stabilized over the past half year or so, ahead of elections. The problems are mounting. The central bank's net foreign reserves, which have been used to stabilize the lira, are now in negative territory for the first time since 2002. And the strings holding up the lira are already starting to snap. The lira fell by 2% since the first round of the presidential elections and dipped to a record low of 20 to the dollar unless Erdogan reverses course and decides to raise interest rates which he has declined to do for the past two years or so the currency will plunge as soon as the central bank runs out of ways to defend it and that moment might come soon
2: but looking slightly more broadly and and now at another five-year term with Mr. Erdogan what's your sort of takeaway from from all of this Aside
3: from Erdogan himself, one of the big winners in these elections is Turkish nationalism and Turkish nationalists who proved how much they matter to the balance in Turkish politics. In the parliamentary elections, one out of four Turks voted for a nationalist party, including one that is a coalition partner of Mr. Erdogan's and another that is a coalition partner of Mr. Starolus, as well as three other smaller nationalist parties. Erdogan himself has embraced the nationalist cause, embraced the nationalist cause years ago, in fact, by shelving peace talks with the PKK, throwing thousands of Kurdish activists behind bars and opening a new front – in northern Syria, in his country's endless war against the insurgents, and also by adopting a much more aggressive foreign policy vis a vis Europe and the West. Nationalism has always been part of Turkey's political culture, but what the latest elections show is that the nationalists, although spread across several parties, are kingmakers as much as the Kurds are.
2: Piotr, thank you very much for your time.
3: And thank you for having me.
0: With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at IDAireland.com Invest in Extraordinary. May the 5th
4: in Korea is a public holiday. It's called Children's Day. In the early hours of the next morning, two teenage girls went up onto a bridge in the center of Seoul and climbed over the railings. They were preparing to commit suicide. What's more, they had decided to live stream this.
1: Andrew Knox is our Korea's correspondent.
4: That turned out to be a good thing because a friend of theirs alerted the police who came along, talked them down back over the railings, and fortunately both of them lived through the night. A few weeks earlier, a similar thing happened, but with a much more tragic result. A young woman went up to the top of a roof in Gangnam, an affluent area of the city, and livestreamed herself on Instagram and jumped. All three of these young women were members of Depression Gallery, which is an online community for people who are struggling with their mental health. Incidents like this are part of a worrying trend that's been going on in South Korea for a while now.
1: And what is this trend? What is the data telling us?
4: So South Korea has, for a very long time, had an unusually high suicide rate. In the OECD, which is the club of mostly rich countries, the only one that historically was higher was Lithuania. But around about 2018, as the suicide rate in both countries had been dropping for a few years, South Korea had an uptick, which took it above Lithuania, uh, while Lithuania continued to trend downwards. This uptick wasn't evenly distributed across the population. Young men continued to kill themselves at much higher rates in Korea than women. And in fact, that's true broadly across the world. But in this particular instance, the rise was driven by more young women committing suicide.
1: And do we know why young women are more at risk than they used to be?
4: One thing that certainly is very difficult here in Korea is the contradictory expectations that are forced upon women. They excel at an academic level. They do extremely well in school, extremely well in universities. They're some of the most well-educated young people in the world. And that's despite the fact that the system itself is extremely competitive and difficult to do well in. But once leaving university, life gets very difficult very quick. There's an incredible amount of sexism in the South Korean workplace, and on the flip side, there's a presumption that they ought to fulfill traditional gender roles at home, raising children, doing the domestic labor, and in fact, the hours they put into that are far in excess of women in comparable countries. On top of that, South Korea is still an incredibly patriarchal society. It's got extremely rigid sexist beauty standards heaped upon it, both societally and from its pop culture. At the same time, there's quite a lot of misogyny, both online and in real life. And there's a culture of fairly normalized sexual abuse. South Korea does have a Me Too movement, which kicked off shortly before this uptick in suicides and has raised a lot of awareness of many of these problems. But unfortunately, there was a backlash to that, and very few of them have been solved or really made that much progress, frankly.
1: And so, Andrew, how is the government planning to respond to this problem?
4: So the government recently announced its fifth master plan for the prevention of suicide. That was back in April. Mental health checks, which were formerly available every decade, will now be available every two years. And it proposes a variety of approaches for dealing with suicide. So what this means for women in their 20s and in their 30s who live alone is that counseling and therapy, which will sometimes involve family members, is going to be more available to them. All of this is a good start at offering women help managing the grim circumstances they find themselves in can't but be a good thing. But... A more serious attempt to deal with the problem would perhaps look at the underlying reasons why such misery exists and try and tackle them head on.
1: Andrew, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks very much for having me.
5: Paul Simon's new album, Seven Psalms, is a 33-minute suite of acoustic songs with a sparkling, almost hymn-like delicacy.
1: Kate Mossman writes about culture for The Economist.
5: It's an account of his internal dialogue about faith and religion. But strangely enough, the music and lyrics came to him in a series of dreams. He woke up between 3 and 5am over several nights in January 2019 and he literally wrote down what he'd heard in his sleep. This may sound like a very mysterious process to most of us, but a lot of musicians have described very similar experiences. Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees famously keeps a little recorder next to his bed. One of the greatest choruses in a pop song, that wondrous, snaky extended sequence in You Win Again, came to him as he rested. He later said, some of my best grooves come in the night. Like a dream, those things will disappear. You have to catch them. Many of us think that we can dream music, but on waking, all the notes just seem to disappear. So maybe it's only those with a prepared mind, as Louis Pasteur would have put it, who can wake up and actually put the music to any use. Sir Paul McCartney conceived the whole of yesterday in one night in 1964, when he was staying at Jane Asher's family's house. And he walked around for a month singing it to people saying, is this mine or have I accidentally appropriated someone else's tune? And a year later, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones awoke to find that he'd set down the riff and the words, I can't get no satisfaction on a little recorder in the middle of the night. And Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac came up with the lyrics and the music to the gorgeous ballad Songbird while she was asleep. She dreamt the entire thing although she did thank a couple of toots of cocaine and half a bottle of champagne for helping her get there. She credits supernatural forces, but it's possible that the drugs sort of kept her in something like an REM state where she was able to access her dreams and pull them out into the real world. The science behind how this is possible is still not fully understood. The period between wakefulness and sleeping, which is called hypnagogia, and its inverse, hypnopompia, are states that are associated with unusual mental activity, such as hallucination and sleep paralysis. And classical composers recognise this. Beethoven saw that state as conducive to creativity and problem-solving. There's some scientific exploration of the area, but not much. And studies of dreaming often emphasise that inspiration doesn't descend from a heavenly muse, but that deep inside the temporal lobe, the hippocampus, creates connections and ideas from the things that the individual already knows or has recently experienced. Scientists often liken the process of dreaming to the mind doing a clear out at the end of the long day. Psychoanalysis, of course, offers a very different view. Psychoanalysts argue that dreams provide a direct line to the soul, a useful insight into the psyche and the things that we don't know about ourselves and can't access during the day. Carl Jung, the master of dreams, he thought that music was the most numinous art form. He couldn't play a note, and he said he was frustrated by this, but he also saw it as an expression of the collective unconscious by which he meant this vast repository of archetypal material that all human beings shared and that we all had access to, but not necessarily in our conscious minds. Could that explain why many people imagine that they've written fantastic symphonies in their dreams, but then they wake up and can't remember a single phrase? In what was probably a case of false memory, the composer Giuseppe Tartini heard his Devil's Trill Sonata in a Dream ...but he always claimed that the version that he transcribed in his waking hours was far inferior. Was that the case, or can we really write better music in our dreams? Paul Simon recently said that he's always aiming for a place that's just out of reach. The edge of what you can hear, he said. That's where I'm trying to get to. It's fitting that faith, never quite abandoned in his life, should bother him in his dreams... One of the lyrics in the section called The Sacred Harp runs The sacred harp that David played to make his songs of praise We long to hear those strings that set his heart ablaze It seems that in his dreams he can A
0: change of mood
1: So for this episode of the intelligence let us know what you think of the show you can get in touch at podcasts at
2: and if you're not a subscriber to the economist you really are missing out but dive in with our current deal a free 30-day digital subscription just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes we'll see you back here tomorrow